Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome to Understanding the Human Condition with your host, Dr. James Flowers. Hey, Robin, I'm in Los Angeles today. How I'm are you? so jealous. How I, is it there? You know, I'm staring across the room at Manny Rodriguez from La Fuente Hollywood Treatment Center. Hey, Manny. Hey, hello. <laughs> Manny says hello to Dr. Landau and you. Thank you. And I'm in Vail, Colorado in the mountains, in the snowy mountains. Exactly. And here she is, our guest. I'll take, I'll take either one. Yeah. So, so happy to be here, Robin. Thanks. Oh, awesome. And Dr. Dr. Landau, thank you again for joining us today. We've been looking forward to this. Pleasure. I'm going to read a little bio, and then we can get off with some good conversation. Dr. Landau, child, family, and community and neuropsychiatrist and former professor of psychiatry and family medicine, has specialized in mental health, trauma, addiction, and co-occurring co-occurring disorders for 40-plus years, exploring how to facilitate resilience and healing for individuals, families, and communities through collaborative care. Developer of evidence-based best practice transitional family therapy, TFT, the first integrative family systems model, invitational intervention, ARISE, comprehensive care, link community resilience, and LIFE, link individual empowerment, all based on TFT. She has over 200 publications, has taught in over 100 countries, a senior Fulbright scholar and recipient of numerous awards. She's also served as consultant to the UN, to the World Health Organization, the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, the CDC, SAMHSA, and several international governments. Welcome. That's awesome. Very impressive. Gosh. That is amazing, just hearing that. And, you know, I have the pleasure of calling Dr. Landau a dear friend and a dear mm -hmm. colleague, and we've worked together and traveled the world together. And I'm so excited to see you. I haven't seen you in a year because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so I think my first question, Dr. Landau, is, is tell us about your experience over the last year of being home during COVID. How are you? How's Pam? And uh, we'll start with that. Great. Yeah, the, the ultimate irony was that I was consulting to World Health on how to deal with the impending crisis of COVID. Um, on the 1st and 2nd of March, and I came home with their variant. Oh, God. <laughs> so, wow. so 1st experience, yeah. And um, we had, a couple of years ago, we had decided to close down our, our physical office and to start working virtually and to make sure that our programming was all available virtually. Sure. So um, we were very lucky. We were ahead of the curve. 
and have had a lot of fun honing things that missing friends and not being able to give you a hug today. Exactly. And yeah. meeting new friends like Robin, and I can't hug Aww. you either. Yeah. So Soon. not seeing grandchildren in person, but I am deeply grateful for all of our Zoom and other social media and connection tools that allow us to maintain relationships. But it'll be wonderful when we can all travel again and be with people in person. It will, absolutely. And now, thank goodness, I believe both you and Pam have been uh, had your second vaccine. Is that right? That is. And we both had COVID. And mm. um, we both had our second vaccine. So our first trip will be to see the youngest granddaughter. Yay. Minnesota mm. next month. So we'll That's... be able to have Passover together. Be the first holiday we can celebrate together for a year. Yeah. So, Mm. And Pam is skiing up a storm, doing <laughs> her job on the mountain. Yes, I her think you did out there today. Yeah, that's amazing. And the rest of your family as well, and they fared COVID fairly well. well. Good. And most of them have already had, other than the little ones, most of them have already had their vaccines. Yeah, okay. good. Wonderful. Well, you know, I wanted. I know most of the audience, if not all of the audience, knows who you are. And, and Robin, that was an amazing uh, bio and, and a brief bio because Dr. Landau's done so much more, but something I loved was your TED Talk. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your TED Talk and the many different cultural communities in which you're from and how that's affected your own human condition? Great. So um, yeah, the TED Talk really grew out of a lot of my travels and experiences with different families in different cultures. And I grew up, as many of you know, in South Africa, which is a multicultural society. And um, it, with 11 official languages and as many different religions and practices. And um, during the times of apartheid, where things was very much growing up in a war zone, seeing my first murder when I was five and being part of a family that was on the forefront of fighting, fighting apartheid. So I think one of the things I'm proudest of is being in the apartheid museum or having, yeah. having been part of the struggle. Um, so it, it's colored who I am. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really um, impressed me and has been a huge part of who I am and how I work is the realization during that those early years of, of trauma, that it was our support from our social system that made everything worthwhile. I was the oldest of 34 non-blood siblings. Wow. And we always knew, even when one of the parents was in prison for, um, for bad activities, or somebody had been had escaped over the border or parents were under a banning order, which meant they couldn't have visitors. Um, there were always other parents around to take care of us. And there was this sense of shared mission and connection that um, even when my father died when I was six, it was devastating, but I didn't feel completely alone. Right. Um, the other part of that was growing up as he developed the field of social and preventive medicine, we lived in many different cultural and ethnic communities. 
and learning to be a um, traditional African healer from the age of three, there was that sense of all the stories of the ancestors and something much larger than I was. Right. So when I'd gone through part of going through medical school and um, even though I had thought I would spend my life as a traditional healer, I realized there was more to it and struggling to balance um, healing with um, with a very cut and dried cause and effect medical model. Um, along with um, my conviction that our connection to the people we love and who support us is what makes us whole and healthy. So those were really the primary driving forces. So my early research was on attachment or connectedness and on working cross-culturally, trying to find a way of connecting with people regardless of what their beliefs were, what their cultural norms were. And I tried desperately as a child to learn all 11 languages and to learn about you know, all the different religions from the Judeo-Christian to the Bushmen who worship a praying mantis, little tiny little stick creature, and the Irland, which is the giant antelope. And what I realized was that what all of us as humans and as living creatures have in common is that we're all in transition. So my research expanded into looking at how can we work across cultures using transition as a universal theme? And how do we access that inherent resilience that I believe from my healing experiences is in every living thing? Absolutely. Sorry, you know, that was a very long answer. I, no, I love that. And I want to talk about your father and his influence on your life in a minute. But I want to ask you, do you speak Afrikaans? Yes. I, uh, can you say something in Afrikaans? Because I love the language. And what does that mean? I'm very glad to be here. Ah, thank Aww. you so much. I love that language. It's a beautiful language. But I did want to just visit with you about your father and his influence on your life. And he passed away when you were six years old, I know, but he had built a hospital. And you recently went back and visited that hospital as an adult. And they honored you. The community honored you. Can you talk about what that experience was like and the influence that your father had on your own life and becoming who you are today? You know, I, it's always been a theme for me that um, we all knew that he had died because of the political hardship. He had a massive heart attack when what, what he had started was um, his mission was to reduce infant mortality and improve improve health and education. And um, he had started community and community and health centers in all of in all of, across the country. And just prior to his death had been appointed as head of a new um, government federal department of social medicine, social and preventive medicine. But what it meant was that as a little child, I lived in each of those communities and learned each of those languages and customs. And um, really with his encouragement, 
learn the strengths of each of them and also the the importance of of health and prevention being psychosocial cultural um, and and ecological because his teams were nurses doctors educators agriculturalists farmers you know people who could really bring complete or holistic health to an area and educating the women who believed firmly in the equality of, of all human you know, of all humans. Yeah. So that's a um, that's been a prevalent theme for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And when his team was disbanded, they went all over the world and started the prevention um, social medicine departments in other countries and cities. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think I had no intention of going to medical school. I was going to be a healer and um, and I was going to be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did the healing part. Yeah. And I still do. I still do the acting. Yeah. You know, one can't be teaching lots of people without having using some of those skills. Right. I love that. Yeah. Robin, I think you were going to ask a question. Oh, I no, 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 not at all. Um, you mentioned in your TED talk that you felt like all of us are trauma survivors, and you, in fact, there was one part in um, in the presentation that I was watching where you asked everyone who's a trauma survivor to raise their hands, and only a couple people did. And mm -hmm. then you said that you really felt like all of us, because of our backgrounds, um, mm -hmm. and are trauma survivors. Can you expand on that and explain to the audience? Yes, I think that takes us back to your original question that I wandered off. <laughs> on a little bunny trail tangentially. Uh, right. So, you know, tra traveling around the world um, and looking for resilience, um, what I realized was that we all have trauma and resilience stories. In, in the TEDx talk, the example I use is intergenerational, um, intergenerational migration or pioneers and refugees, but in fact, we've all, all our families who are here in this world are survivor families. Uh -huh. And I started to look at the intergenerational stories going back five to seven years of families who were still struggling with addiction or had struggled with addiction in the past and what I discovered was that one could trace back to the first trauma, whether it was the loss of a lot of babies, whether it was a war, whether it was a natural disaster, but, or whether it was generations of suicide depression. And what I found was that the people who had not found a way of accessing their resilience and surviving got severely depressed, committed suicide, but they were not survivors and that branch of the family stopped there. Uh -huh. Whereas what I saw with those who had survived and continued to survive was that by the third to fifth generation, the, the addiction or depression had almost completely stopped without any outside intervention. And so I started looking more carefully at what was going on in those families. And I realized that 
across the passage of time without any external intervention, grieving gets resolved in the natural course of, of, um, of generational growth. Mm -hmm. um, and that had me realize that we need to view addiction and overcoming depression or getting treated for depression as resilience mm -hmm. rather than as a major problem or something to be ashamed or blamed for because those were the survivors. They found a way of dealing with the overwhelming grief and loss. Right. Um, and I chose immigration as the theme because again, it's a universal theme where when we move, even if it's locally, Holmes and Ray found that moving house was the highest on the individual stress scale. So right. I looked at what does it mean when we move? What are the transitions involved and what are the tasks related to each transition? And where most of us in an everyday situation deal with three transitions at a time, the most three at a time, more than that throws us off track. And then when I added up transitions and tasks for people who are migrating and the more stressful the migration, like refugees and mass disaster, the more tasks. So if we have three transitions and each of them has four or five tasks, which is the average above what we normally do in a war zone or after mass disaster, people have 12 to 15 transitions. And each of those has up to 30 or 40 additional tasks. Right. So that's why when we have three or more transitions, we start to get stressed and somebody needs to find a way of accessing their neuropsychological survival yes. by finding whether it's a substance or listening to music or playing with a pet. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's so interesting that we're talking about this at this very moment. And what I was, what was running through my mind, I wanted to ask you, first of all, I was going to ask you to tell us uh, if you use this theory and this, and this research that you've done in your trainings at Arise. But before I do that, I was going to say, you know, what we're going through in Houston right now is over the last week, you know, <laughs> The, the temperature in Houston in the summer, I mean, excuse me, in the winter is typically 50 degrees. And over the last week, it was six degrees, you know, five, five six degrees above zero. Yeah, I have two, that, sta that, two staff members in Texas. Yeah. One of whom was without electricity and water for five days. My yeah. assistant Yoda. Yeah. yeah. And, and my home had no power and no water for five days. This, the bathroom wall ceiling collapsed when the water started mm -hmm. thawing. The garage apartment ceiling collapsed with water coming through the the end of the yeah. floors and 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 I and I'm okay and there are so many people millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people in Houston right now that their homes and their pipes burst and they have no water today and they have no some no electricity very little access to food that don't have the resources or the resilience really to even understand what to do what advice would you give families that are going through a recent natural disaster and trauma? So you've just highlighted the key pieces, which are that the reason we get stressed with, with major transitions 
is an imbalance between resources and yes. and stresses. Yes. And you know, I know that you have emotional resources, you have intellectual resources, you have friends mm -hmm. and social connections, and you have a cell phone. Right. Mm -hmm. So I know that through this, you could maintain your connectedness to supports. And no matter how painful the experience was, you would survive because you know how to access those resources. That's right. And then if we look at the majority of people going through a mass disaster, they don't have any of those resources. Right. They don't have the people to support them. They don't have the finances and they don't know how. Right. So <clears throat> one of the things that, um, that I looked at was how many people of the artificial or professional or ancillary support system does it take to replace one family member or close friend? Mm -hmm. It takes five. Wow. And so if we look at people in a situation like that who don't have the supports, they have to rely on a huge amount of external support that isn't easily accessible in a lot of places, particularly during a mass disaster. Right. And at the same time, um, back 20 years ago, the average American had three confidants, close friends that they would share things with, mm -hmm. we're down to zero to one. Absolutely agree with that. Because um, the social media moguls came together and I happened to be um, working with a consultant who consulted to them at the time um, on a different, in a different situation. They had decided that by the time, in, within five, within ten years, adolescents would connect more through social media than to their families. Yes. And they made it in five years. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at a reduction of resources, um, which makes the stress even greater. So my advice is reach out to people you know, reach out to neighbors. Um, we had an ice storm when I was teaching in Rochester, but we lost we lost power for about two weeks, mm. and we the the neighborhood organized so that the person who had a generator could go from house to house. That wow. everybody took their food from their fridge and freezer to the one house that had a gas stove. Right, and the neighborhood became much closer. Sure. And I think the 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 only survival in a situation like that, where the situation isn't going to get mended fast, mm -hmm. is that connection to others and pooling resources. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then from this, already what we're seeing uh, in Houston and other parts of the country because of COVID, right? But now on top of this natural disaster, that hit Houston is, as we see stress levels go even higher. Right. Uh, we've had so many natural disasters in Houston over the last couple of years. And what does that do to the alcoholic and the drug addict, right? And the people right. in new recovery. Right. And so with your company, which is which I follow and have participated in and just idolize, and you're a huge mentor of mine, but talk to us a little bit about Arise and how Arise helps with interventions and 
and how people can reach an Arise trained interventionist and whether it's Houston needing an intervention for someone that's that's drinking or using substances or anywhere else in the world for that matter. Um, because Arise is such a valuable resource in this world and it's not just in the United States. You have Arise trained therapists in every country in the world. <laughs> not quite, but one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, you know, the easiest answer to that is that um, that first of all, Arise doesn't just deal with substance use disorder, but with all the other behavioral issues. And also we're getting a number, our, our, um, our certified um, Arise specialists are receiving a lot of calls about, um, about the elderly, yes. people developing dementia and they're out, you know, they don't have resources at this time because anybody who's already disadvantaged, whether it's mentally, physically, socially, economically, is going to be under much more stress. Yes. So our Arise folk deal with all of those. And um, the easiest way to access them, um, once people are either in training with us in the internship or certified, we have um, their information is available to anybody on our website they all work independently. Um, we don't get a cut. It's all individual relationships with the professionals. Sure. And that website is www.arise-network.com. And so it's easy to find right on the homepage, their, their instructions. The other thing I wanted to mention is that one of our other transitional family therapy protocols is link community resilience. Mm -hmm. And we often get called into communities <coughs> in distress after, you know, after issues like this. And um, we mobilize the, the whole community and make sure that they are in charge of whatever happens. They take credit for change. We've, we've done many projects around the world where nobody knows we were ever there. Right. But the community drives the, you know, drives the healing, and um, and all of the decisions made based on their own inherent resilience. So we use a lot of intergen in, in all of the protocols. We listen to intergenerational stories and look for intergenerational strengths, and we always look for strengths rather than vulnerabilities. And how are people? getting access to their capacity to heal rather than looking with a pathological lens. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's such a, such a service that's needed right now. And not only in Texas, but really all over the world with what we've gone through in 2020 and mm -hmm. really continue to go through in 2021. I know it's getting better. We've been, you and I have been vaccinated and we're, we're trying to get that out as much as possible but uh you're such a pioneer in in your field and such an expert and and you bring so much to the world and i just thank you so much for what you do and uh robin is there anything that you want to try to wrap up with here well let, let me just say that yeah. it's not what i do it's what i've been gifted to do and yes you know i think that for all of us if we're able to 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 act on our, our mission and maintain that spiritual connection we we can all do and all do wonderful things 
Absolutely. So I say, you know, Dolly Parton turned down the state of Tennessee. They wanted to put a statue at the Capitol. But I say we put a statue of you in Colorado. Yeah, you can imagine oh. how you feel about that. No, thank you. <laughs> no, that statue needs to be for the people who've survived. Uh, well, you've been a survivor as well, Robin. Well, I, I was curious about your work in Appalachia. Um, mm -hmm. How did all that begin? And um, maybe talk, touch on that a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. So um, our foundation, um, Link Foundation, that one is www.capitalslinc, or lower, um, lowercase c, um, foundation.org. Um, my passion has always been working with the disadvantaged communities. And so we do a lot of that through Link Foundation. We also do scholarships for training and those kinds of things. And um, so working in Appalachia has been a combination of people reaching out to us. Um, we've, we've done quite a bit of work in, in Appalachia through Hazelden Betty Ford. One of the people there discovered our work and asked us to train, train people um, for several states um, in ARISE, ARISE Comprehensive Care with Invitational Intervention. And we also have um, um, done some work in, well, the parts of, of Appalachia, Kentucky, Nebraska, Alaska. Well, wow. Alaska less, less Alaska because of the enormity of the challenges of climate change. So um, yeah. also working with the International Resilience um, Center who are focusing on climate change prevention. And really the, the theme is the same. It's how do we access resilience in individuals, families, and communities so that they can design their own healing path. And one of the things that, that, um, that I talked about a little bit in the TEDx talk, but it's in a number of the publications which are on our websites, um, is that once people have found a way of surviving, they deal with trauma differently. Once they're able to access resilience, the entire intergenerational family story changes. Hmm. So if we can work, you know, for example, in Argentina, mobilizing communities within two years, they had a 400% increase in young substance abusers going for treatment. In Kosovo, they developed health, mental health, and um, and substance abuse services that were decentralized. They had health houses, they have health houses in every region where nobody can come without a family member or friend. Mm -hmm. So with people with schizophrenia who normally really struggle to take medication and attend appointments, they have a 98% compliance rate. That's amazing. So it's mobilizing the community to design their own pathway. Uh -huh. So that they own and and have they've selected what they want to work on and how they're going to do it and what's important to them rather than what's important to us. That's right. Absolutely. That's amazing. So the 98% success rate, help me understand what that's related to one more time. Um, that was with people with schizophrenia taking their medication and attending appointments reliably. 
and 1% of the 2% that weren't reliable were because of roadblocks after the war. Just amazing. That's fantastic. And well, it really wasn't all we did. What we do is with all of these um, interventions, we provide a process uh -huh. to the family and the community. Right. And they bring the content and take and, and the goals and take credit for change. Right. So yeah. we work through family and community links. And Arise, the link is the person who calls us. Yeah. We don't wait for somebody to hit bottom. Right. Um, or, or we don't wait for our personal concern to hit bottom because bottom these days often means death. That's we right. We yes. work with the family's bottom, whoever calls us first, whether it's a family member, a friend, we work with their bottom mm -hmm. to mobilize the resources and get everybody healthy, not just one person. I think so that's the rise is getting the family healthy with with life, it's getting the group and their families healthy, and with Link, it's getting a community healthy. Right. Nice. Yes. Just well, amazing work. Unfortunately, we have our two-minute warning. So yeah. is there anything, Dr. Landau, that we didn't touch on that you'd like the audience to know about? Or how can they... You, you mentioned how to reach you through Arise and Link. Is there any other email or phone number that um, you want to share? I'd have to look it up. Okay. <laughs> you know what? The best way to do it yeah, is, is you can certainly Google Judith Landau and she'll oh, yeah. pop up. Well, for or, sure. go to, or go to one of the websites. I'm so sorry. There's I plenty of information out there if you put your name in for sure. That's right. And Dr. Flowers, if they want to reach you at the J. Flowers Health Institute, how do they reach you? Sure. I think the best way, just like with Dr. Landau, is, is uh, www.jflowershealth.com. Go to our website, and you can certainly look us up on there and reach us through our phone number or uh, email us directly on there. And uh, Dr. Landau, what an amazing day today is for me being in Los Angeles, you being in Colorado, Robin in Houston, but getting to spend a little bit of time with you certainly made my day uh, better. Mm -hmm. And thank you for all the work that you do. I miss you tremendously because we see each other too. normally several times a year. So <coughs> I'd be okay. glad when we can do that again. Me too. That yeah. was delightful being with both of you. Thank and you. Was next time in person. Yes, yes. for sure. Stay love, healthy. Stay safe. You too. Love to all of your family. Thanks. You too. Yeah. Take Bye. care. Thank Bye. you. Yeah.